Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. for a Monday edition of All Marine Radio, right here on your home for it, the All Warrior Radio Network. First day of March, what's up? Yes, spring. In case you haven't noticed it, days are longer, right? Days are longer, temperatures are warmer. It's all good. So exciting stuff. But best of all, yesterday... Baseball started with people in the stands. Yeah. You know, sitting on my desk are two baseballs. I wonder, I should have a third. Where the hell is that? Anyway, um, I have baseballs from when I was in Iraq and Afghanistan. There would be like therapy devices. I first discovered it in Ramadi in 2004. I found a, a baseball in where I lived in this. It was kind of an outhouse. I mean, not an outhouse, but it was an outbuilding. And uh, I think it was one of Saddam's palaces. And then in the outbuildings, the servants lived. So whoever was tending to the orchards and the grounds and shit lived in these buildings. So I lived in there for a while until I got booted out. Yeah. Some, no, they just said somebody else needs to live here. Another group. So they sent us to these aluminum trailers. We left. We left a... Uh, my peers and I, we, le- we get relocated to aluminum like uh, like trailers. So we leave masonry walls which are good when shit's exploding and it was an awful lot there 
Yeah, we would get mortared and rocketed on a regular, rocketed on a regular, regular basis. RPGs shot over the walls and shit. Um, but anyway, <laughs> they, they, uh, we got sent to the aluminum trailers. But I found this baseball, and you know what I found out? Just having it in my hand made me feel better. It was it. It took me, um, it took me away. Um, so, uh, my God, my phone's blown up. So I would, uh, so then when I was in Iraq and Afghanistan, I, I had baseball sent to me and I, I gave them to guys who I knew loved baseball. And then other people saw me like, could I have a baseball? I'm like, you don't even like baseball. And they're like, well, I mean, I know other guys, have, I'm like, they have them cause they like baseball. Not because they're like hood ornaments or something. So the one, the ball I have from Afghanistan is I put the, I used to put the date on it, right? Twenty April two thousand eleven, and it says Helmand Valley, Afghanistan. And then I would I would put my little initial. It's an M with a a circle on it. You know, when you have to initial stuff, like when you're doing your, uh, you have to account for stuff in the military. I, you know, instead of having to write your your initials, M, F, M, in my case, I would just put an M and then a circle around the M. All, like one little flourish. Yeah, it looked pretty cool. And it was really quick. <laughs> that was the important part. So I'd put, I put that initial on it. And the ball that's really clean is from 2006 in Fallujah. Fallujah, 2006, my initial. So anyway, baseball, right? So baseball shows up yesterday, made me happy, got to watch it. Most importantly, did not have to, like, focus on the news. Yeah. People were asking me, hey, you watching the president's speech? I said, no. Why would I screw up a perfectly good Sunday to watch politics of any sort? I don't want to be discriminatory against D. Trump, right? Because I do agree with some of his policies. He's the wrong ambassador, man. If you want to give the if you want to give the White House to the Democrats for eight years, run Donald Trump again. He's not going to win that again. So anyway, that's my that's my opinion. That's my story. I'm sticking to it. Um, so yeah, baseball. Um, tomorrow, I'm going to bring the Mensa brothers on. I think Timmy said he can do it. Um. So at least one of them will. Jeff said he cannot. Because I have to go either 1730. I have to go. I would have to go before 1630. Or after. 2000. Yeah, because of the seminar thing I'm doing tonight. So tonight is the seminar I'm doing with uh, all civilians and talk about post-traumatic winning. And let me tell you how cool that is, man. That's like way crazy cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And let me tell you why. Because uh, it works. It works. Um... So, 
Yeah, that's what's most exciting about post-traumatic winning. It actually works. So anyhow, um, I'll be doing that tonight, so I'm excited about that. I also produced a commercial. Well, I reproduced it. I, I did the initial version, I don't know, a year ago or so. And it's a, it's a little commercial about post-traumatic winning. It's called I'll Take You There. And that's a song done by the Staple Singer, if you don't, if you don't remember. The, um, yeah, it goes like this. If you remember. So it starts out as a little airplane. And you can go check it out if you want to right now. It's on YouTube. Yeah. So it's on YouTube. Just in the search box on YouTube, do a search for the Trauma to Joy Network. Yeah. Kaboosh. The Trauma to Joy Network. It's got one video up there. So check it out. Like it and subscribe, just so you know. But let me tell you what it's designed to be. It's something that you could, you know, if you know somebody that's struggling, and you say, hey, let me just show you this little commercial for what I'm talking about. And if you show them this commercial, it's a cool commercial. And uh, so it's up there right now. So I worked on that. And I think everybody who listens to the program knows that I'm my own biggest fan. Right? I, lo- <laughs> I love the work I do. I love, uh, <laughs> I love, uh, I have a cool job, man. I'm not going to lie to you. It's nothing but, nothing but happy. Nothing but happy. So, uh, so yeah, I worked on that over the weekend as well. It's up there. And so, again, I tell you, share it with people. Check it out. And, um, Check it out and uh, let me know what you think. Well, you don't really have to. Subscribe to the channel, right? Give it a thumbs up. All the, you know, you know the drill. All the normal bullshit. Okay. The um, so did that yesterday. Um. And I'll put the, the link to the commercial in this hour. In this hour, what you're going to hear today is uh, I, I can't do Iwo Jima without, you know, playing Cal Humphrey. My One of my favorite interviews I've ever done and Cal PFC on uh, Iwo Jima. And so I was thinking over the weekend, I'm like, yeah, well, like, what am I doing? Like I did, you know, Iwo Jima discussion, but, you know, I love the, I love the live audio that, that, you know, I've collected over the years. I love um, that interview. It's very cool. Very cool. So, uh, so you'll hear that today. But before we do anything else, I should actually open the show. 
Yeah. And uh, I'm negotiating with the Mensa brothers to come on, see if they can do this, and uh, tomorrow record something, and we'll we'll check that out. Uh, so anyhow, the United States Marine Corps Band makes this morning official, first of March. Good morning. <laughs> I'm supposed to kill my microphone, but I didn't get there. Mm-hmm. I'm not even going to edit that out either. Right? I don't know why, but everybody, everybody likes stupid shit. Um, this is dedicated to my video. Yeah. That I'm in love with. Mm-hmm. So if you haven't seen it, it starts out like with a little Cessna flying through a storm. That's what, you know... That's what happens to you after you go through traumatic events, right? You're trying to get through it. You're trying to live through it. You know, therapy, you know, helps you endure it. And then post-traumatic winning shows up, right? Puts a new joystick into your plane. You pull back on that thing. And then through the clouds into the brilliant sun and the beauty above the clouds, right? So then it, like, talks a little shit about post-traumatic winning, right? Um, And then... Then there's another shot where it says you check out the gauges of your life. And then magically the camera dips down and you look at the gauges. And this guy's flying. It's sunset. This dude's flying along the horizon. And it's beautiful. And then he looks down at the gauges. (laughs) Perfectly choreographed, by the way. Yes. That's all. And then so then at the end of it, it's got some billboards that come up. And yeah, my contact info. I thought I should throw that in at the end. And uh, just in case, maybe you want to do something about it. And um, so, uh, yeah. So this is dedicated to my commercial.
You're betraying your whole life if you don't say what you think. And you don't say it honestly and bluntly. What keeps you awake at night? Nothing. I keep other people awake at night. For this campus had prepared him well. <clears throat> I'm very confident that, thank you very much. <clears throat> if this was vodka, it'd be a lot better speech. <clears throat> But I'm not supposed to glamorize alcohol anymore. So, young folks, you ignore what I just said. That's funny. Come on. We just have to execute. And we are executing every day. And Sergeant Major and I are very proud of it. This is serious, though. Doesn't mean we can't get better. We don't. That's where post traumatic winning gets its name. From this little video clip. Yeah, no shit. We have to go fight. We got to do what these Marines did. Bob Neller. Years ago. General. Persevere. Former Commandant. Difficult. Marine Corps. conditions and odds to win. You gotta win. Win? What do you mean? You, you mean it's just not important that we try hard? No. No. We gotta win. Trying hard is bullshit. governor of the state of New York, he's in more trouble. And you knew it was going to happen, too. Right? You knew it was going to happen. Where there's smoke, there tends to be a lot of fire. My experience, people doing things that were wrong in both Iraq and Afghanistan, when you start flipping over rocks, they didn't do it one time. Right? And there'll be more women that come forward to talk about the governor of the state of New York, and he will be done was an interesting fallout, right? The three most high-profile politicians, right? President of the United, former President of the United States, lost. The shining star, Emmy Award-winning con artist, Governor Cuomo, he's going to be out. And Gavin Newsom, he's going to be out. So, um, yeah, yeah, governor, the California governor got caught in another restaurant that he forbids people to go to. He got caught in another restaurant over the weekend. Now he's trying to explain that away. People are tired of it. And they're getting tired of the school boards. And you know who they're going to come for next when Como and Newsom are out of the way? Fauci. The next time that guy's right will be the first time. Oh, my God. It's a joke. Listen to what he says. Uh, Whatever, dude. All right. (laughs) Currently, foggy and 50 in Quantico. There's four weather warnings there, so we got to go. We got to go check out the weather in Quantico. Three down the coast at Camp Lejeune. All right, here they are. So these are the weather warnings in uh, in Quantico. Let's see. Number one, a special marine warning. That has to do with wind. 
a gale warning. So a lot of wind in the northern Virginia area. Down the coast, it is partly sunny in 75. They have three weather alerts at Camp Lejeune. A line of showers will affect the eastern Carolina coast. Dense fog and a small craft advisory, which is normal when you're near the coast. Sun and 47 at 29 Palms. Sun and 57 at Camp Pendleton. Dark raining at 73 in at Camp Smith in Hawaii, where I'm going three times. Yeah. Excited about that. I've never been. Dark cloudy at 68 in Okinawa. Dark cloudy 78 in Darwin. And in Oslo, raining and 43 late in the day. At the home of All Marine Radio here in beautiful Southern California, it is partly sunny and 53. Yeah, it's cold, man. What the hell? We'll check the news, and then you'll hear Cal Humphrey. Uh, look at, whoa. Looking for a high of s- No, that ain't right. Yeah. All right. Look for a high of 70 today, 72 tomorrow. Rain on Wednesday. What? 84% chance of rain and 62 degrees. On Thursday, it's going to be 63. And on Friday, it's going to be 69 degrees. Let's look at your weather here on a Monday on the first day of March. Um, Let's check the news. Top story in Stars and Stripes, and then you'll hear Cal Humphrey. Top story in Stars and Stripes is headline, report, U.S. wasted billions on cars, buildings in Afghanistan. The United States wasted billions of dollars in war-torn Afghanistan on buildings and vehicles that were either abandoned or destroyed, according to a report released Monday by U.S. government watchdog. Of course, come on. Right? Of course. So that, that, that news today. More than 1 million doses of coronavirus vaccine given to military personnel despite the high opt-out rate. Now, the question is, um, the question is, what is the opt-out percentage? Speaking to reporters during a press conference call while visiting Hawaii medical facility facilities, Lieutenant General Ronald Place said that roughly a third of military personnel are declining to be immunized. Others are reluctant because there are no studies on long-term effects of new vaccines. So, there you have it. If you're part of a low-risk population and there's no long-term study, I mean, come on. Come on. Why would you? Don't need to. Nobody my age dying from this shit. So, what the hell? Top stories in the Wall Street Journal this morning. Number one. U.S. stocks climb as the bond market calms down. There was a really good, I thought, uh, opinion piece in the journal about when did we become unconcerned about the truth? 
or words to that effect last week. It was very good. Let me see if I can find... Let me see if I can find the name of it. What altered the public's taste for lies? It's written by Holman Jenkins. I thought it was very good. If you could, if you you can find it, you could check it out. Right? What altered the public's taste for lies? Um, in terms of Navy Marine Corps stories, nothing there really to see. Top five stories: An early bird. Number one: Pentagon releases training materials to address extremism. Here we are, man. Gonna go, gonna go down the Marines United front, right? We're gonna go down the Marines United rabbit hole. At the end of all of that, what? There was less than 150 people involved in it, and only a fraction of those, you know, were on active duty. I I need to look those numbers up. I need to look those numbers up. So we're gonna go, we're gonna go down to. The extremist hole. Okay. It's the big boogeyman right now. Number two, Air Force General worried U.S. won't field a sixth-generation fighter in time to beat China. Wait a minute. We're just fielding the fifth-generation one. Since September, when the U.S. Air Force disclosed that it had flown a full-scale demonstrator of of its future fighter, the defense community has been hungry for more details about the next generation air dominance program and air force leaders have been loath to provide them that's what made unprompted comments by air Com- air combat command head general mark kelly so surprising during a february 26 roundtable with reporters during the event none of the 20 something journalists gathered ventured to ask kelly about the next generation air dominance program but as the session drew to a close kelly de- decided to share his thoughts anyway. Quote, I am for one confident that the technology and the test points have developed to where next generation air dominance technology will get fielded. And I'm confident that the adversaries on the other end of the technology will suffer a very tough day and a tough week and a tough war. What I don't know, and we're working with our our great partners, is if our nation will have the courage and the focus to field this capability before someone like the Chinese fields it and uses it against us. Hmm, interesting, huh? Yeah, so that's uh, the number two story. Number three, Secretary of Defense Austin mulling whether to send the aircraft carrier Eisenhower back to the Middle East. So, the carrier just returned from sea. No port calls due to COVID. Send them back out there. Number four, CID agent sought puffer fish toxin before poisoning his wife, according to charges. Who cares? This is like the gossip shit of the DOD. I hate it. Number five, Democrats renew push for war powers overhaul after Biden's serious strike. A um, couple of interesting stories about the uh, about Afghanistan. At a pivotal moment in the Afghan war, Biden weighs the dilemma about the future of the U- of U.S. troop involvement. 
That's by the Associated Press. Contractors and American troops in the region of Iraq have been put on high alert after our whatever strike over the, uh, a few days ago. And then there's one other story. Um, so in the voice of America, Taliban warned turning away from the Afghan peace deal will doom it to failure. The Taliban demanded Sunday that the United States and its foreign military allies leave Afghanistan by May 1. In line with a peace agreement, the insurgent group signed with Washington a year ago, warning any attempt to change the path is already doomed to failure. So, there you have it. All right, that is a, uh, that is a look at your news today. Uh, coming up next, coming up right now, not next, is uh, is one of my favorite interviews. It's an Iwo Jima interview. It's with a guy named Cal Humphrey, and um, it's fantastic. So, without further ado, he fought on Iwo Jima. This is Cal Humphrey. You're listening to All Marine Radio on the All Warrior Radio Network. Seven thirty-four here on a Thursday morning. Nine thirty-four in the Midwest, where uh, my guest is from. Uh, he is uh, none other than Cal Humphrey. Cal, first of all, uh, thanks for taking time out of your day and joining us here on All Marine Radio. Well, you're welcome. Glad yeah. to be here. Well, that's uh, that's awesome. What do you, uh, first of all, um, first of all, we need to learn about you, okay, so we can know if we can take you seriously. Um, you're born and raised where? Well, I'll tell you what, I got my discharge out so I could remember myself <laughs> what the hell happened to me. <laughs> I was born in, in, uh, in Portia, Kansas, in 1925, and then we moved to uh, uh, St. Joe, Missouri. The folks moved to St. Joe, Missouri. I was just a child, and that's where, where I grew up pretty well. We we really moved to Mound City. We did a little town north of St. Joe, but we grew up in that area. And how many brothers and sisters? I had two sisters and two brothers. Oh, so five families and a kid. That's a respectable number, right? Well, back in the 30s, that was kind of a small family. You know what I was going to say? In the 50s, in the 60s, we had four. And I looked at my mom and dad like, well, what's wrong? Why The Seymours have eight. Yeah. You know, the Demers, they have 11. Like, what the hell? Four? Are you kidding me? Are you guys... Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of like we were, you know, the... We were the smallest probably in, in the area. There was eight, nine, ten, even up to fifteen. And the hell of it was, most of us lived in two-room houses with no lights, no electricity, no water, no running water. You know. How did that work? Well, it was worked fine. We didn't know any difference. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was fifteen before I got into a house that had uh, electricity and running water. That's, that's when we moved. Uh, we moved down to St. Joe from Mound City. Where did you? Uh, where did you? Uh... Where'd you sleep? If the, you got five. Well, hell, we had uh, we you generally put you generally put you generally had two bedrooms and a kitchen, maybe a little bit of the old living room. Right. And you always filled the bedrooms with uh, beds, and the and the girls slept with and the mom and dad and the boys all slept in the in one bed, you know. 
fighting. Back then, it's, it's pretty cold. You're happy to have a couple of guys with you. <laughs> the, uh, all right, so uh, how does the Marine Corps... How does the Marine Corps get on your radar from uh, from Missouri? Well, you know, we were uh, back in, in in World War II. You know, nobody thought about not going. Right. Everybody, I mean, it was just a just a fact you were going to go to service. All right, hold on. Let me let, let me stop here. First of all, where were you uh, on December seventh? What were you doing? I was in school in in Lee Summit, Missouri. I was down there. I was I wasn't living at home. I was working for a farmer down in Lee Summit, Missouri. How old were you? I was seventeen. Seventeen. You're working, going to school, and on that Sunday morning, what were, were you? Did you go to church? Were you a church going kid, or what were you doing? Well, I was a church going kid till I got big enough to uh, sneak off and go fishing. <laughs> so you were you were fish, you were fishing that morning. No, I was probably milking cows. All right, and so what? What did? Uh, so when you thought, uh, when you heard about it, I, as you just said, nobody thought about not going. Everybody, everybody was going to go do their part. Um, did you know anything about the Marine Corps at that time we, in your life? I didn't know anything about the Marine Corps, and we didn't pay much attention to the war. You know, we were just living. It really wasn't like these wars now where you get, you know, you all got radios and every other damn thing and you hear everything that's going on, you know. Right. We didn't hear hardly anything. Unless something really bad happened, there'd be a little article in the paper about it or something like that, you know. But we didn't sit around and watch television, and uh, but most people didn't have them. You didn't have television back then. Wow. Right. I got my first television. I went come back from the service and went to farming and I had the I bought the first television in that farming area it was a little, little video thing you know I'd sit there and look at that just amazed how they could put that picture on that thing but <laughs> see back then we didn't get the news like you get it now you know when some you know, 15 minutes after somebody gets shot overseas we hear about it right. Right. we just didn't we didn't have that news we didn't have that news cycle that we got now that's not that's not a good thing either. I don't think the um my guest this morning from uh, the great state of Nebraska is uh, Cal Humphrey, and uh, Cal's nephew Jess is a is a colleague of mine. I'd, I'd like to call him a friend, but I'm very careful who I call friends there. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, he was a uh, member of the Alpha Company, First Battalion, Twenty Seventh Marines, uh, on the volcanic island of Iwo Jima. He's gracious enough to join us this morning, and we're talking about uh, where he was prior to the war. So uh, December 7th rolls around, and then how, how the hell did you get in the Marine Corps? Well, I'll tell you what, they just put me in the Marine Corps. Oh, really? Yeah. And I wasn't, uh, it says here I was 66 and a quarter inches tall, so that was a five seven. <laughs> and I probably weighed about 130. <laughs> So I think the Marines were needing people. <laughs> <laughs> they were needing people. <laughs> Holy smokes! So, so 130 pounds at five foot six. Holy smokes! So they tell you you're going to be a Marine, and what'd you say? Okay. Oh wow! Well, hell, I didn't know anything about it. Yeah. Okay. okay. And so then, where, where did they send you? Well, they sent me to boot camp in uh, San Diego, and I, I think that's about a month. And then we went to. Uh, that, that line camp up there, 
Tilton. Right. And we were there for a few months, and then we went to Hawaii, and we spent most of our time in Hawaii up there on the King Ranch up there in the desert mm-hmm. training. Right. And, now this and is not- we had a lot of training. And this is, hey, Cal, this is 1942? It was three, wasn't it? Four, three or four. Four, okay. All right. Yeah. And the, and so you're you're in Hawaii, tra- and now you're training with the 5th Division? Yeah, the 5th Division, 27th Marines. All right. And that uh, that gets made, to, for people that, that are familiar with it, what a lot of uh, Carlson's Raiders, a lot of paramarines uh, made up that. That was a pretty, uh, that yeah. was a, that was a pretty experienced group, group that you walked into. Absolutely. I think that's why they put them in there, because all of them came in. I think they made them all sergeants and and corporals and things like that, because all of our squad leaders were were from that that group, you know, that was with Carlson's Rangers. What, what were they like? Uh, what were they like to train with? So, so you report, you uh, you know, you're fresh off the street, you go to boot camp, and now these guys have been fighting for a while. What were what were they like to work with? They were great guys. They were great guys. They had been, you know, they'd been through the ranks. They knew everything. They weren't up there, you know, uh, like the like when you went to boot camp. You know, those those guys were jerks. But these guys were really good guys. They they knew everything. They weren't trying to show off. They they taught me an awful lot. And and I I had several friends of them that were really good friends of mine. In fact, I had you know my platoon sergeant was really a good friend of mine. What's his name? Uh, uh, the my what's his name? Yep. Uh, yes, you shouldn't ask me. You told me that you told me that Les Jenks. You told me that. Yeah, a real good friend. In fact, uh, he stopped. He was coming. To, his his folks were in the owned a mortuary in in uh, New York, and he retired. When he came, he just, him and his wife were going to California. They stopped there and spent a couple of days with me in oh. Omaha. How long ago was that? Oh God, that's been a long time ago. Probably twelve years, thirteen years, fourteen oh. years. I don't know I've been here twenty nine years, so it's been been a long time. All right. So when you get my age, you know I'll be ninety one next month. When you get my age, names and dates. Times kind of go by the wayside. That's a long time to like have to remember. That's like a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's like it's when you're young, you don't have to remember that much stuff. But as you get older, there's a lot of stuff yeah. that you got to remember. Well, I can still remember stuff I did when I was four or five years old, but a lot of times I have a little hard time remembering what I did yesterday. Yeah, I'm, uh, trust me, I'm with you. <laughs> I'm with you, and I'm anyway. The uh, so, um, I, th- I think Jess told me that John Bazalone was in your battalion. John Bazelon was in the 28th. 28th, I'm sorry. Yeah. Did you? I knew, I knew John. Yeah, he was in the 28th. How did you know him? Oh, I seen him up slop shoot, you know. We, we, uh, you know, back then, you know, they had those slop shoots on the, on the, where you could just go up and you get beer for 15 cents or something. A lot of people went up there every night. John was there quite a bit and I talked to him quite often. Quite often. Tell us but about he, him. He, he got nutty. You know, he got that award, right. and when we went into Evo, I think he thought he was going to do the same thing. Well, hell, he got shot right off the bat. Right. right. The, um, what kind of guy was he? I mean, I... Oh, I, I thought I, he was a pretty nice guy. You right. know, well, of course, we was all about that snockered when we were together, but right. I thought he was a fine guy. <laughs> really? The, um, 
So you, you so you do your training, and, uh, and and then what's the most memorable thing in terms of either what you learned or in training from from the group of guys that that comprised you know your NCOs and the leadership of the 27th Marines? What's what, what's the number one thing they taught you? Well, they they just taught you a world of, of, of stuff. You know that how to take care of yourself and. Try not to be a hero, and but do your job. And they they were they were pretty good. But the hell of it was, they didn't last very long. Most of them were killed in the thirty fourth day on Iwo. In fact, our lieutenant was killed. Uh, well, the first one we had wouldn't get. We were all about six of us in a big shell hole there, and uh, he wouldn't get out of it when we left. When we had to leave. Had to go on across that field. And so he was a smart guy. Yeah. And then uh, the next one we got lasted about a day and a half. I didn't even hard to get to see him. And then we didn't get any more. We didn't have any more lieutenants all the way through when I was there. All right. The um, I have a, I have an email for you. And if uh, if you have a question or comment, you can send a text message to seven one four six six one eight one zero seven. You can send an email to live radio at gmail.com or you can call if you want to ask Cal a question yourself. Uh, 714-884-4294. Uh, the question says this, Mac, where did 27th Marines land on uh, the the morning of, uh, of D-Day? So, well, we had the, uh, the, the beaches were, uh, you know, like uh, colored, like red, white. We landed on red. All right. And red was was so so the closest to Suribachi was Green Beach. That's what's 28th Marines, right? That's where they landed. We we all all the first wave, which, which I was on, landed in Amtrak, and you know they ran us up on the beach as far as they could go. Right. And then we bailed out the damn things, and and that beach was, you know, that's all volcanic ash. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but yeah, it, absolutely, it's soft and tough to walk in and run in and and we got in pretty good. We got up next to the bank and then the uh, Higgins boats started coming in. Of course then the, the, the oh hell broke loose, you know, that that was a devastating thing there that but for the first two or three hours. Let's talk about, let's talk about that, Kel. So so you you get uh, you guys were on you you guys were in track vehicles and uh, you're off the coast and the navy's plastering that. And the Navy and Marine Corps Air are are hitting the island. What were your thoughts as you were headed to the shore? Well, the I was manning a 50 caliber machine gun on that Amtrak, and so I was standing up where I could see everything. And they were the ships were bombed. The ships were shoot, there wasn't any airplanes. It was all it was all it was all naval naval guns. Yeah, and the uh, the uh, hell you couldn't even see the island. And, uh, you know, it takes you a long time to get in. Those tracks don't go very fast. You know, you get out there, you all load up, and then you run around in a circle. Everybody gets lined up. And the time you lined up, a, the division's going to hit the beach. You know, Christ, you got people lined up for a mile. Right. And then, so we, we, we get in, and, and they take us up on the beach as far as they can, and then the Higgins boats start coming in. And, of course, the, the, after the, after the, uh, they quit bomb, they quit shelling it. Right. 
But the, then the aircraft came in and started bombing it. Okay. The, the Navy aircraft, small one. Right. And then when, uh, then when the, then all hell broke loose, you know, from the Japanese. And of course, they had that island all gridded off, and with their, so they were very effective. They just killed the hell out of guys. You so, couldn't even see, hardly see the back. When you look back, you couldn't see anything part of the dead guys. And they had a lot of boats out in the water. And right. It was a really, I don't know, I think we probably lost an awful lot of people. I, I don't know any numbers or anything like that, but just the looking, it was terrible. Right. So, and our mission was to, was to go straight across the island, across the airfield to the other side, and right. the 28th was to go and turn and go and take Sarabachi. Okay. They took that in about three days, I think, and because and, uh, I remember seeing a little flag put up there about the second or third day, I can't remember what, this little bitty old thing. And they, then, they, then they had the big ceremony, you know, where they got a big flag up there and took the picture. Matt, can you believe that after 70 years they finally identified the right people in the picture here? In the last, well, I, in can, the last I can, yeah, I can believe that. You know, it was a confusing situation over there, no matter what you did, you know. Right. So, I, yeah, I can believe they 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 were all up there, and he was trying to gather up a bunch of guys to put that flag up. You know, he needed about two. What did he get, six, seven? <laughs> six. And uh, uh, to make a picture, and it, was, it turned out to be <laughs> great for him. Yeah, a hell of a picture. <laughs> it sure was. The, but yeah. yeah, I can I can believe they could have made a mistake. Because there was probably there was probably six eighteen guys standing around watching, you know. Yeah, and they were up there. For, they were up there for a while. Do you do you remember? Did you see the first flag go up? Do you do you remember that yeah, at all? Yeah, yeah. No, I didn't see it go up. It wasn't very high. It was only about three or four feet high. And it was, looked like somebody something somebody carried it up in their pack or something. You know, right. just a little one. But I, you, I told the guy. I remember, we were we were. We were starting to go the other way, but we were still getting some fire off the Farabachi, you know, some rifle fire. And uh, I remember we turned around and looked at that flag, and I said, well, we won't have to watch our asses anymore. It looks like they've taken that hill. Just to answer the emailer, um, if you look at where 1st Battalion 27th Marines is on Red Beach, um, it goes from the south, uh, adjacent to Surabachi. 28th Marines is on Green Beach. Then there's Red 1, which is 2nd Battalion and 27th Marines. Red 2 is, is further north, and that's where the 1st Battalion 27th Marines lands. And it's, it's probably right at the base of airfield number 1. So there's a gap yeah. between airfield number 1 and Surabachi. That's kind of 2nd Battalion 27th Marines and, and, and then 28th Marines. Uh, first time 27th Marines, is, it looks like you guys headed right across the southern end of the airfield yeah, and we were, to the far side. We were supposed to go clear across that airfield, the far side. And the far side, the far side, you didn't go to the water. There was a great big, great big, looks like 20-acre depression there that was kind of sea level. You know, you go down another bank and... and uh, so that's as far as we went. We didn't go down in that depression there, and then we turned and went up the island. So you're you're this is your first time uh, in combat, Cal. So, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, do you remember as you got on the island, what the hell is going through your mind as you see you know you know you're involved you don't know it yet, but you're involved in one of the greatest 
um, battles uh, of World War II and, and certainly in Marine Corps history. What, what were your thoughts as you were, well, you as know, you were coming off the beach? You know, you're, you're so dumb, I guess. You're, uh, I really wasn't all that frightened till we got, you know, till we got on up there and, uh, and, and, you know, then, then when you get into these battles and you get, you get mortared, you know, first we'd lay in those goddamn foxholes and get to shaking our teeth and, <laughs> our teeth and bump and your flesh would even twitch, you know, you'd be so goddamn scared, you'd be terrified. Right. But when you got out, you kind of laugh at each other and go on, but it's a, it's a terrifying thing, and some guys get scared. They just couldn't. They just lay there like babies. They couldn't. They had their wire, their rifles, the tight. You couldn't hardly get out of get them out of their hands, and their teeth would be, you know, just like they're going to pop. Their mouth would be so tight. But it was a it was a terrifying thing. But the first uh, the first uh, day. Didn't seem to bother me too much because I, really I was too dumb to know what the hell was going on. I guess, but even with the guys dying, <clears throat> you know, we all kept we all kept toilet paper in our helmets. You know, when we go on these, right. we did that back in the states. When we go on, we we go out. I remember looking up there when I was on the beach and I see that toilet paper flipping down. I thought, oh my God, somebody guy's head blew off. But it's. Uh, it's enough to make people go nutty in a fruit cake, you know. Did but you? that first day didn't seem to. I, I suppose I was. I just didn't know what the hell was going on. I guess. I suppose you're just kind of numb. When you when you think about that first day, what's the? Is there? Do you have a lasting memory? What one thing you remember? Anything more than other things on the first day? Well, I remember we had a foxhole right up in front of us, right on top of the hill. There it was a it was, it was a cement dome thing. Mm-hmm. And we had the, the, uh, Jinx said, we've got to take that damn thing out. We can't get out. We can't get over. It had, it hit, but it did have some cracks in it where I guess the bombs done something to it. And he sent a couple of the older guys crawled up there and uh, got a flamethrower in it. So we got, we got by that obstacle in pretty good shape, and we got back up on the airport, and it was just littered with bomb, big, big, big holes. It was, hell, some of them was six, seven foot deep, you know, and 15, 20 foot across. I don't, wow. I don't know what kind of bombs made those. But big, big bombs. They were good for us, because <laughs> we could kind of hopscotch from those from one to the next and get across there. We didn't have to dig any foxholes going across that uh, across that airport. We just kind of moved that and moved, you know, out, crawled around, and got over. And you guys got to the far side. And did you guys get to the far side on day one? We got there in about day two, I think it was. Okay. Pretty well. Day one, we didn't do too much. We had a lot of snipers. There were some snipers out on that airfield, and in some of those holes, and there was, I know there was a. A plane uh, looked like an old plane had been sh- scrapped or something. There was a sniper in. They did get a half track up there and blast it out of there. That's when we got out our hole, moved on out. And I remember they told us on the on the, out in the ocean. They said, "Well, they didn't think the Japs had any guns on their 
do anything bad to their tanks, you know. Well, right. hell, the first tank that went up above us just got thrown over the <laughs> I said, well, that settled that. <laughs> I guess that I guess that answers that. Yeah. Maybe maybe they do have an anti-tank gun up there. I think he thought he. I think they convinced those tank guys today too for that first one went up. The uh, <laughs> my guest this morning is Cal Humphreys. He a member of First Battalion, Twenty Seventh Marines, Alpha Company, uh, as it were, and landed on uh, Iwo Jima in uh, nineteen forty-five. And uh, we're talking about the landing. I've got an, another email question. Mac, how did, uh, as, a, as a young guy, his first battle, he said he wasn't that scared that day, but I'm sure that he's, given the death he saw on the beach, uh, it had to make an incredible impression on him. Did he just put it out of his mind and, and keep going because that's what he had to do? The, Cal, so, I mean, you, you saw stuff you'd probably never seen in your life uh, that day. How did, you, how did you deal with it in your head? Uh, well, you, I think everybody dealt with it the same way. I think it was just, just awesome. I don't, I don't I, you just, you were just there, you know. You were just there. I don't think probably your mind wasn't there altogether, but you, you had a few things to do that kept you busy. We had to keep moving out, try to move out. Of uh, course, and you could hear those goddamn bullets whizzing by you, and then they were still, they were still uh, shelling the beach and shooting mortars at the beach. The thing that really saved a lot of us was those mortars went down in that pretty deep in that uh, ash before they went off, which probably saved a hell of a lot of guys. So if it would have been normal dirt and they would have been surface burst and yeah, mortars, yeah, exploded have been terrible. Right. We might not have gone on there, wow. but, but it—I can't explain it. I guess your—I guess your mind kind of does something to you. I mean, you, what can you do? You can't panic and run back out in the ocean, and you can't—you goddamn sure don't want to run ahead. So you just kind of stay there with everybody else, and what anybody shoot at? Yeah, how did that? Did that piss you off? You're, all this stuff's well, going on, yeah. and there's nobody, and there's nobody yeah. to shoot at. What the hell? Well, you just—that's what I say. You just—you just don't know what the hell to do. You, it wasn't, and you couldn't dig it. Props on that crap. So you kept. So, so you, you kept following Jenks. Well, you just. <laughs> I hope Jenks. I he hope, was like us. He didn't go very far either. I hope Jenks knows what he's doing because I'm behind him. Now, I, you and I were talking the other day, and I said, "What was the secret to uh, you were you got to you were wounded on what D plus nineteen? I think so, something like that. Okay, and uh, and I asked you what was the secret to that, and you said never be the first one out of the fighting position. <laughs> well, you need to look around a little. But we were all pretty careful, but still, still a hell of a lot of us got killed. Wow. All right. <laughs> there wasn't any safe place. There wasn't any safe place. When you got up there and you had to, Go back and replace people. You know, you can't do that hardly on the front line. So it was worse back there than it was on the front line because you had a company back there digging in. And, hell, it was, that island was, you could see pretty well everywhere. Those guys were a little on the high ground compared to when, from the airports, you know. Right. Christ, you'd just get the poop mortared out of it. It didn't last very long, 15, 20 minutes, and then our guys would, uh, would find out where they were and start throwing mortars back, you know, and get it stopped. But but 
10, 15 minutes, motor's flying all around you. It's scary. That'll piss you off. You know how long? You know, you know, you know huh? now we have a radar beam that we shoot across the ground. And when, when they shoot something at us, it breaks the, the radar where it goes up and it breaks it where it comes down. And then we get the exact grid that they shot it from. So well, when, now that, that has helped us to beat hell because it, it generally take, it generally probably took our guys a, 10, 15 minutes to see it, right? locate them. Yeah, they had to see it. Uh-huh. Which and means they got to they got to see enough shots to find that thing. What, what the hell is it? Oh, it's over there. Well, now, you can imagine that. Let me tell you how it works now, Cal. We'll have a, one of those drones flying overhead, uh-huh. and we have this, it's called counter-battery radar, uh, you know, laid out across uh, an area, let's say Fallujah or Ramadi in Iraq, and then they shoot. And as soon as that thing comes back down and breaks the plane the second time, you get the point of impact, you get the point of origin, and then you very quickly take the point of origin and you send it by computer to the guy running the drone. He takes the camera, and the drone goes right to that grid, and here they are standing there. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, and I'll tell you what, in less than 60 seconds. Mm -hmm. And then guess what happens at about four minutes into it? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, the only thing I thought they did wrong is is bomb. They used bomb. It it. I always told Les, I said, if we can get these guys to drop napalm, we'll be in good shape. But these damn bombs don't. They can't get anybody in any caves. They can't really hit those pillboxes. I said, unless they're lucky. So napalm. Explain why napalm was effective. Oh hell! It, you know they dropped that stuff and it. You know, it spread for a long ways, and it, it cooked them. It even gets hot, you know, and go in, in the mouths of those caves and stuff like that. But if they'd have dropped napalm on that island, they'd, they'd have probably hurt somebody. But all that other crap, I don't think it hurt anybody worth a damn. Breached a few pillboxes, but I don't think it killed very many people. All right. Now, Cal, I've got to take about a two-minute break. Can you hold okay. on, and we'll continue our discussion? You bet you. All right. From Omaha, Nebraska. Is it Calvin? Calvin. Calvin. That's kind of a Baptist name, isn't it? Yep, probably. <laughs> Calvin Humphrey. He's the uncle of uh, a good friend of mine, Jess Humphrey, and he's gracious enough to join us here on the Thursday edition of All Marine Radio, right here on the All Water Radio Network. We're going to take about a two-minute break. We'll come back. We'll continue our discussion about uh, what it was like to fight on Iwo Jima. More of that coming up next. You're listening to All Marine Radio on the All Warrior Radio Network. Five minutes after 8 o'clock here on a Thursday morning. And uh, privileged this morning to be joined by a veteran of the, the Battle of Iwo Jima. His name is uh, Cal Humphrey. And a uh, member of the 27th Marine Regiment, Alpha Company, which makes him part of the 1st Battalion. And uh, we continue our discussion and uh, kind of talked about the first day, Cal. I've got, I got a couple emails, so let me ask them. Uh, Mac, uh, early in the battle, what killed the most Marines? Was it indirect fire, mortars, was it machine guns? Uh, Cal? I think it probably was, uh, was the mortars and shells. Okay. It, it there was a lot of bullets flying around, but 
I don't. You can you, you hear them whistling by, you know, like kind of make a sound when they go by you, but I I couldn't answer that question. I don't know. Okay. All right. Next question. And, and, and some parts of the beach was a lot different than others, you know. Right. Right. No, I mean it, it's very interesting as you read different accounts of the battle. How much it's how different it is depending on where you were. Sure. Uh, next question is. Uh, now, how, how did how did those guys sleep? Um, it seems like when you read about the battle, they operated almost what would seem to be 24 hours a day because of the Japanese threat being all around them. Uh, how the hell did they sleep? You 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 had you had two men to a foxhole. Two 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 men. One was supposed to be awake all the time. We had to we had to be conscious of of. That banzai crap, you know, they pull everywhere. Right. Every night. So we and we had uh, the the navy shot flares. That island was never dark. It was, you know, you know how a flare is. It kind of you can just see. And uh, so we'd set our grenades up. We'd set our machine guns up. We'd set our thirty-seven millimeter guns in our line with the canister ammunition. Spread out our BAR men because we, you know, we didn't know when this band was going to come early in the morning or night or what the hell ever. Right. And uh, that's that's one guy was supposed to sleep and the other guy was supposed to stay awake, which hell never happened. You know, we both went to sleep. But uh, hopefully, there's enough guys in a somewhere around the line that wake up and start shooting, wake you all up. And we killed, a, at the end of the thing, we killed a lot of Japs at night, one at a time. I don't know whether we were looking for ammunition or water or, you know, walking around out there. And and, and my guys, when, when I was took over the squad, what, we killed, in fact, we killed them the last night before I got hit. I told the guys, I had two little, two recruits with me because they were just, got them that day. And I said, now, I want you guys to aim, and I want you to don't shoot till I tell you, because I want this son of a buck to get up close enough we can kill him. I don't want to wound him out there throwing grenades at us. So we got him done. But a lot of these guys listening to this might think that old guy's not here in a fruitcake. You know, you you keep you keep hearing all the time these people don't want to talk about the, the don't want to talk about the you ever hear that? You know, he doesn't oh, yeah. talk about it. Yeah, he came home and never said a word. Well, what do you, that's that's what I. I told uh, told one of my boys, you know, he said, well, did you never ever talk about it? I said, let me tell you something. What am I going to say to you? I come home and see your mom and say, well, or my mom and say, well, mom, I just spent a month without taking a bath or changing my clothes and ate skate racing every day. And I did brush my teeth once in a while. I thought I was going to have enough water, but I had to use the same toothbrush I'd clean my rifle with. How about that? How about that? Who the hell wants to hear that crap? How about this? <laughs> it wasn't too bad. <laughs> and then you run out of toilet paper, you got to wipe your butt with your hand and clean it off. I said, one thing we did have, we had that volcanic ash clean your hand up pretty good. Does it? Well, they use it in a lot of soaps now, right? I said, you can't talk about that kind of stuff, and you damn sure can't talk about people getting blown up and getting their arms blown off and... That man popped over with some poor bastard bleeding to death. You can't do anything for him but give him a morphine shot. 
And you can't. I said this isn't a movie. You can't call it karma because first place they probably couldn't hear you, and you wouldn't want to have somebody have to get up and get killed getting to you. And if he was smart, he wouldn't get up. So I said it's just it's just horrible. I hear these wanting to put these girls into combat. It's probably like you say. It's probably nothing like we went through. So maybe these girls can handle the front lines, but they can't handle the front lines like those boys had to in World War One. No matter where you are, whether you're in the Pacific, whether you're in the in an eight, you keep, and, and you're, I, you just you just couldn't they couldn't do it. I don't I don't think they can do it to be honest with you, Cal. I mean, it, you know, you might be able to do it back here, but you know that. Yeah, they couldn't do it, and you wouldn't want them to do it. For Christ's sake, who wants to take our national treasures and put them on the front line? <laughs> Yeah, no, and again, but you know, Marines will handle it. You know, just like if if you had a weak guy, what do you do with him? He, well, he's going to go work in the office. He'll be the company driver. He'll do this. He'll do that. They'll find something for him because there's not that many women that'll do it. And quite frankly, and you know, we're, in fact, we we're having an interesting discussion about that the other day. It's like so a squad leader. Somebody gets confused. What's a squad leader do? He grabs him and throws him. Yep. Right. And he didn't have time to talk. Hey, go and no. Yeah. You know, you can't. They just, so. they just can't. I'll tell you what I carried. I carried, I had the, I had that uh, M1, you know, was loaded that weighs about nine pounds. M1 grand, right? I had a, a 20 pound of explosive, and I always carried competition C2. I had three concussion grenades, and then I carried a phosphorus grenade, because I like to throw those. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> then you got, Probably uh, four or five uh, clips or six or seven, however scared you were, you know. Right. And you had, uh, you, you know, had your other little crap you're supposed to have with you, you know. You had your canteen, your bayonet, and your K-bar and all that crap. A woman can't do that. Yeah, well, let me tell you that. They're just tougher than hell. They got, well, I, wouldn't, I shouldn't say that. A lot of them could. Well, well. The guys couldn't. Well, no, that's what I'm saying. But, I you couldn't know, carry a flamethrower. It weighed about 60 pounds. Hell, I tried it. I couldn't even get, <laughs> I couldn't even get 10 steps. With the flamethrower? <laughs> and even if I could, I'd have said I couldn't. <laughs> Those things get you killed. The, the, listen to this. This is written uh, by a Marine Corps Sergeant Major who was involved in the testing that the Marine Corps did with female, uh, with female Marines, and who, who all, you know, by every account, you know, did their best and 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 were and are good Marines. It's just it's just not an easy task. He says this: the best women in the ground combat integration task force, as a group in regard to infantry operations, were equal to or below, in most cases, the lowest five percent of men in the group in the test study. So th- th- that was the best woman is equal to or below the lowest five percent of guys. Okay, now, uh, so what does that tell you? That tells you yeah. that, that it's 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 hard work, and you know the weaker guys struggle to do it, and uh, you know I'd say, and that's what the test says that the lowest five percent. And he is right because we had some of them, and we had some that couldn't do anything. One of the guys, there was two guys in my platoon, Les Yanks, the sergeant, and a kid. Don't say his name, but a kid from Chicago that. He could, he, I don't think he walked a step on Iwo Jima. There was, he was damn near crawled everywhere. And he wasn't worth a damn. I don't think he probably even fired his rifle. Wow. 
And I'll tell you something else probably probably nobody would realize, maybe like in other areas it was different. I saw very, very few jets. Very few. So how did you, okay, so. It was all, it was all digging them out, blowing them out, covering them up, sealing up the caves. And you'd see if, I, I told Les one day, I said, you know, Les, we've, we've lost over half of our platoon and I haven't, we haven't visibly seen kill over seven or eight or nine jets. You know, when we, when we'd blow up a fox, when we'd blow up a, a pill box, we'd get them all. Or, you know, or, or some little structure they had built, but the right. ones in the cave, you might see one or two in the door, and then you'd throw a phosphorus grenade in there and then seal, seal the damn thing up. But I said, we're not, if, if, if these guys were moving backwards, when we get to the end of this island, it's just going to be all people. Right. Right. Well, let me ask, let me ask you about that. I have an email that says, Mac, I'm looking at a map of the battle, and 1st Battalion, 27th Marines, goes across the island, and then they turn towards the northern end of the island. Right. And they run in to the eastern side of Hill 362 Alpha, which was built like a fortress. Right. Um, tell us about that thing. I've seen, I've seen pictures and diagrams of that thing. They turned the mountain into a pillbox. Into it, it, they turned every, every little structure they had into a pillbox. Every little structure. It, and there was back when you got on the the big end of the island, there was a lot of those not like that hill, right. but like uh, half as big and two third as big, and and they all had caves in them. They all had oh god, they had everything, every place. That that guy that ran that island, that that Japanese commander that set that island up, he was a genius. Kurbashi. Yeah, he was, he was really a, he must have been a, he must have been the best, best officer they had in the whole Japanese army because he did, they did never do anything foolish. They never ever showed themselves. So he had him extremely well trained, I guess. I, I, I don't know, but it was kind of like fighting ghosts, you know. You knew where they were and you knew damn well they're out there because they're killing you. But you damn sure couldn't see too many of them. Cal Hunter, Cal Hunter, my guest here on that Thursday edition of All Marine Radio. We're talking about the Battle of Iwo Jima. And Cal, the other thing about Hill 362, which is what you're talking about, is not only was it the hill itself that was, you know, fortified, but all the terrain that surrounded it, you know, that ringed it, was shooting as you tried to close with the hill. You know, Marines were getting shot in the back, were getting shot in the side from, you know, from the cliffs off to your right as you were moving to the north. And then from, you know, on the northern side, on the far side of Hill 362, the terrain that there's a hill that goes up kind of behind it, you know, that dominated the approaches to it. So it was, uh, you, you read about just getting to it, to get to it. You had to fight to do that. And it just, you know, the tactical problem that he put in front of you guys as you said, he's a smart guy and absolutely brutal in terms of what it costs you guys in, in terms of casualties. Yeah. Well, when we were, we got over to that edge of that island, you know, like I told you, we didn't go down in that big swale. Right. It was quite a quite a swale there. We went 
right around that, and when we come to the hill, the, the, the hill 362C, we stayed on this side of it and went on, went on around that curve, and that little depression was behind us. Right. And, I, and we were getting some shots from the rear, and I looked down there. They had a trench all the way, a, a kind of a berm all the way across that thing, and it had gaps in it. And they were they were they had holes they were shooting at us from back down there, and from on top, and and we could walk probably we probably had twelve fifteen feet we could walk if we stayed up close to that bank. But if you got if you got two foot out of that you got shot. I had a, I had a good friend with me. Red, his name was Red Cole, and I said, "Now, Red, don't get up there. Don't get up there." Stay down here. Dampy didn't walk up there, and Dampy didn't get shot. Right through the side, went in one side and out the other, and I grabbed him and pulled him back down by me, and he said, I can't feel my feet. I said, oh, you, you probably be all right, Red. You just, you just hurt. But we had to leave him. They, they, you know, you just stick a rifle up. If they're alive, you don't put a helmet on top of it. If they're dead, you, Stick your rifle, stick the rifle in the ground, put a helmet on top of it. But uh, the, the, the litter bearers, hell, they was they couldn't keep up. They just they took mostly the live guys and the dead guys. A lot of times left and laid around for a day or two. But but we finally we finally took that. But that that devastated uh, pretty well devastated our company. We had we had. Uh, I don't know. They trained us, you know, to walk in single file and leave distance between us. And uh, you know how guys are, right? If there's if there's a little jump, they have to jump over pretty soon. They're all they're all bunched up in front of it. We we did lose one complete full platoon just right off the bat there. And from then on out, well, we we kind of was a little bit more careful how we did things, you know, but. Or, I mean, one complete squad. My guest this morning, Cal Humphrey. Uh, he, uh, he, a PFC when you went ashore. And, uh, when did you become a squad leader? I didn't, I be, I became a squad leader about the, about the, about the last week. And only because I was one of the, there was three of us left. A guy by the name of Groneman, and me, and a corporal. And we were, we were up, we were up in those hills, and we were walking down to a. a we had about a twenty-foot canyon we had to go through, and the bottom of it was all eroded out. And and they came to a little wall in front of it. It was about oh five and a half foot wall. Well, you know how you do when you. We had all new guys, but three of us. Damn, they didn't all crowd up in there. You know, right, right behind that wall, and I was bringing up the rear, and there was a cave on one side of it, and pretty soon grenades started coming over that wall, and guys started shooting out of that cave, and Jesus Christ, it was a mess, and and uh, I did finally get up there and kill a couple of guys in the cave, threw, threw a grenade in there, and threw a couple over the bench, but it was just didn't have anybody that. Groman got killed right off the bat, and and that was 
we got a lot of medals over there in that island because the officers were so close, they could see damn near all the combat, you know. They could see all these firefights. Right. And I got a silver star for that, that little episode, which wasn't anything but a bunch of bullshit because that kind of stuff you know, happened every day. <laughs> <laughs> It's, no, it sounds like it is. Well, um, I got another email for you, Cal. Uh, Mac, as Cal, as Cal looks at the battle, what was the most difficult part of the battle, for in, in his opinion? Well, the, the the I guess the worst part was, you know, when you had when you had a, a, an objective, you, you just had to move out and you had to take whatever you had to take, you know. And like you say, if they had a cave. They had it protected by a couple of pillboxes, you know, that, uh, out to each side, and maybe some spider holes, and maybe another little bunker or two. But they were all pretty well tied in, so so we just if you attack one, you got shot by the others, and 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 it was that was really hard and really tough. But that didn't bother me near as bad as laying in a foxhole getting mortared or a, or a shell hole. That's what. That's what damn near run me out of my mind. In fact, I told Les one time, I said, Les, I just didn't stay up here. I just didn't not go back. Oh, and yeah, they rotated your, your platoon and company? Well, you had to go. Yeah, they rotated the company generally because you'd lose. You'd get up there and you might lose a, you might lose a, a, a platoon right. half, and then you'd have to move another platoon up and lose some of them. Then you got to go back and get reinforced. You can't get reinforcements up there. You know, right. you damn near got to go back. Right. It wasn't. It wasn't on account of ammunition or anything like that. We always had plenty of ammunition. Just getting we short water once in a while, but other than that, we had plenty of ammunition. And all right. So the mortars are, are the things that used to piss you off. That's out. what scared me, Landon. You knew damn well somebody was going to get. Uh, they were going to hit some of you. All yeah. right. Another qu- another question for you. Um, Mac, did, uh, did, did Cal use the same rifle throughout the battle? Uh, those guys must have pumped a lot of rounds through those rifles. Did he wind up uh, getting a new rifle at any point because he wore his out? I've read well, stories about that. The same rifle the whole time, Cal? Yeah, same rifle. And to be right triple with you, we didn't, we didn't really shoot that much. If we saw anything or if we saw a hole or if we saw this or we saw that, we shot or like if we were going up to – if we t- we had to take the flamethrower guys up. You know, three of us would go up before him and crawl up, and he would come up right behind us. And then we'd get a, we'd try to get a, throw a few grenades and get a spot so we could get up there and throw that, put that flame in that hole of that cave or into the. And they they shoot pretty far. Those flamethrowers are shoot 35, 40 feet, I think. And that was forever on Iwo Jima, right? I mean, when most of the engagements were taking, you know, place less than 20 meters. Oh, hell, they were terrible. Yeah. Terrible. Yeah, when you when you got in close and, and you got the... If once in a while those Japs would run out of those pillboxes and you'd, you'd see them, you know. They knew they were going to get burned after a while. Right. So they'd... But they, they very seldom ever came out of the caves. And we could seal those caves. Pretty easy. I've got another email for you. Um, Mac, did, did, after hearing that he was wounded on D plus 19, 
that must have felt like an eternity in terms of time in close combat. Did he think he was going to get killed? Everybody thought they were going to get killed, and that's what I told the recruits when they came up to me. Well, the ones I had after I took the, the squad over, I told them, I look, guys, now, the odds of getting out of here alive are just almost nil. So any time you see a something move or you see a hole in the ground or you see a hole anywhere or anything, shoot at it. Now, I don't give a goddamn shoot your whole clip up. We've got a lot of ammunition, but shoot at it. And keep your goddamn heads down. Don't be getting up messing around and looking around and not paying attention. Look, look in all directions but look forward. And, How did you and, get, uh, I did not wear out my rifle. No, it was, uh, I left the damn thing. <laughs> Where did you, when, uh, tell, uh, can you tell us how you got wounded? Well, we were, uh, B Company had got wrecked that day, and, and, uh, uh, our captain said, well, we're going to have to fill in that line, so my, my, uh, my platoon had to go fill it in, and of course I was, uh, let's say you take, the, you take your squad to Alaska and go on down You'll probably meet up with somebody down there on the end. Well, hell, we didn't meet up with anybody. I didn't see anybody for a quarter mile down there. So I told the guys, well, this far as we can go, so we'll just, we'll just stay here. I'd seen where a tank had turned around, you know, and left a pretty good depression. And I said, you guys can, we can dig in here a little bit and lay here in this tank track. And, and, uh, the, the next morning early, a tank, the tank came up. They must have called for it. Okay. And a, a guy popped out of the hood, and he said, well, I'm looking for a target. And I said, well, you're the target, you dumb bastard. You're clear up here on the front line. I'll get on the phone and talk to you. So he got back in, and I got up and walked around the back to grab that goddamn telephone. No more had it in my hand, and the mortar started falling. And he killed my two recruits. And I think I was, the one that got me was, on the other side of the tank because it just hit me in the upper body. And, uh, uh, of course that tank, he packed he he put that, I didn't know this tank could put the rubber. <laughs> if I'd been behind it, he'd have forced me to death. So you got hit me? You got hit me pretty good and, uh, and not, I think, I couldn't hear for about a month and a half out of that one ear, but it got me all on my left side and, but none of my legs or anything, so the tank had to be protecting me a little bit. <laughs> and I busted a vial, a vial of melon salts and thought, well, there's got to be a goddamn aid station around here somewhere if they had that big a battle yesterday. And I, I staggered back there and found one back there. So you wa- you walked back under your own power to the Well, to I the... walked and walked and crawled and sat and rested and smelled my smelling, my smelling salts. How long do you think it, take, it took you to get to the aid station? Oh, you know, I don't have any idea. I, I don't know. It, it, you know, time just doesn't seem to make any difference to you when you're hurt. And I was hurt. Well, <laughs> I had a couple of... Those Japanese must have had a lot of powder and not very much metal because they put a lot of powder in their their uh, mortars and they put a lot of powder in their their grenades. And it busted them up into real small pieces. Hmm. And I had two pieces go in my chest. They left that in there. Still got it? Still in there? Yeah. Yeah, it's still in there. And I had, had a piece, two pieces go through my helmet and stuck 
between my skin and my scalp, and a piece went through my arm, and then I had a pretty good piece hit me kind of on the chest there and dug a teacup full of meat out of there. Teacup. And uh, I just, you know, it, and, and I think that concussion probably was what hurt my ear. Yeah. And that uh, that kind of makes you a little bit nutty, so you just, you just don't know how to um, well, yeah, it went the right way, probably. In your case, nuttier, nuttier, right? Yeah, nuttier. <laughs> so, well, Cal, look, first of all, um, I've got one more question for you, and then we'll let you go. But uh, can we do this again sometime? Can I give you a call when you come back on? Because there's a lot of lessons that uh, we have to learn from, from you, and we kind of heard the story for the first time. So I'd love to I'd love to talk to you some more, but I've got one more question for you. and then. Uh, okay. All right. Um, what makes a good Marine? Well, I I think a, a guy that can kind of keep his common sense. You know, the first thing they want to they want to t- uh, preach to you and, and get in your head that you're ten foot tall and and bulletproof, and you're not. So those guys that know their know what they can do and what they can't do, and still keep their goddamn common sense instead of instead of waving that flag all over hell, makes a good marine. So don't lose your common sense. No. And to know and know that you can be just as dead as anybody else out here. Absolutely, and everybody else in the service is just as good as you are. A lot of them proved. A lot of them came back from from being on uh, leave and the weekends and found out that those army boys are just as tough as they were. <laughs> <laughs> in spite of in spite of everything you saw in the movie. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you what, Cal. First of all, I can't tell you what an honor it is the, to have you on the program here. I've I've read about Iwo Jima and uh, and and the battle. I think as a lot of Marines have uh, most of my military career and uh, and stand in awe of guys like you who went over and uh, and fought that fight on a daily basis. And uh, you know, and uh, I can't tell you what it's been, uh, what a thrill it's been for me to have you on. And I am gonna, I, hey. I don't give a shit if you tell me, yeah, don't ever call me again. I don't care if you say that. I'll I'll call you and bug you and drag you back on this program. Yeah, this 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 doesn't bother me much. I'll I'll lay awake at night or two, but then I'll get in a hurry. Do you did you have very many uh, mental problems when you came home? I mean, we call I never it... had any. I, I but I'll tell you what I did. I didn't go to any conventions. Mm-hmm. I didn't go to the goddamn. Place where they all went up, you know, got drunk with the, the, those. Everybody joined those. Uh, with the Legion and the VFW? Legions, you know, American right. Legion. Right. I joined and spent on my money, and I still do, but I, I don't go in the joint. And I don't go, you know, I don't go talking war talk to everybody. I just forgot it and left them alone. And I just had two buddies that I visited once in a while when I went to. Phoenix, they both lived there, and uh, that was the, that was my the limit of what I did about it. Now I don't think I didn't dream about it a hell of a lot, but uh, uh, I'd get up and read a book or something. I didn't lay there and suffer, so I got along great. So you came uh, and, and came home and tried to get as far as you, away from it as you could. Just just didn't yeah just didn't didn't want to be involved in any of that crap. Interesting. All right. 
sir, thank you very much today. Okay. Well. And uh, we're going to do it again in the not-too-distant future. So. All right. That would be fine. All right. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. That is Cal Humphrey from Unbelievable. Right? <laughs> Unbelievable story of uh, life on Iwo Jima. And, you know, you hear his perspective. They teach it at you 10 feet tall, but you can be just as dead as everybody else. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to, uh, we're going to continue a discussion we had yesterday about the, we're headed for the Chosen Reservoir. Don Bennett's going to join us here in a minute. More of, uh, All Marine Radio coming up next right here on the All Warrior Radio. Yeah. Iwo Jima to the Chosen. Come on. Are you kidding me? This, I mean, look, this is a dream come true job. I keep saying that every day, but it is. More of that coming up next. 